Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas. This episode might sound a bit dark because we're going to talk about grief today. But as you know from a previous episode, I'm all about the balance between the light and the dark in life. And if we don't talk about the hard things, it becomes even more difficult and challenging to move towards the lighter, easier things. So you yourself might have experienced grief or someone you love has gone through grief and you don't really know what to say to them. You don't really know what to expect. Is this normal? Is it supposed to last this long? Are they supposed to feel this bad? So I hope that in this discussion today with my friend and psychologist colleague, Marianne Trent, you will learn a bit more about what grief is and how that is different to, say, depression and how grief can obviously lead to depression. You'll learn a bit more about what to say or not to say to someone who's experiencing grief and what you can do to cope with it. So let's introduce our guest. Dr. Marianne Trent is a clinical psychologist and author of the book, The Grief Collective, Stories of Life, Loss and Learning to Heal. She weaves a compassionate approach through all of her specialist trauma, grief and eating disorders work with clients. And she's kindly given us the time today to think this through a bit more. And yes, it's a dark topic, but we hope that the conversation also leads to an element of hope and joy. So welcome to the podcast, Marianne. It's a great honour to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Michaela. And although, you know, the topic of grief is a hard one, you know, no doubt we will also try to bring some light to it as well. So we don't want to scare off listeners about a very emotive heavy topics. So we'll do our very best to try to make it tangible and easy to follow what's what the concepts are about. And towards the end, obviously, we will have our regular takeaway as well that I will, I will ask you to give something tangible to the listeners as well to take away. So let's dive in with thinking a little bit about this topic of grief and also we're going to link it with trauma. So before we do, obviously, the listeners need to know a little bit more about Marianne Trent. You know, who are you and and why, why do you do the work that you do around grief? Okay, so I am a clinical psychologist. And I would primarily have said grief wasn't my thing um, initially, really. Uh, certainly when I was working in the NHS, if we had referrals in adult mental health for grief, we were like, oh no, not for us. But why I've become a bit more of a grief specialist is through my personal experiences of losing my dad. So that has absolutely turned me on to grief, so to speak. It's broadened my horizons. It's, you know, it's taken me to my knees and beyond and below at points. Um, and it's just made me realise how little grief is spoken about and how it really should be. So that's where I come to you um, today, really. And that's obviously why we're trying to mystify this concept a little bit, because it is such a a universal global concept that you know people across the globe will experience regardless of background so I wanted to demystify that a bit and think a bit more about what is grief you know how would you explain that that experience of grief and and how do we differ from each other in our experiences of grief okay it's a good question I think it often depends on how a relationship has been if, it, if it's grief that for a person that we're grieving for, that's that I mean. What I've also learned is that grief can crop up for non-death related things as well. So um, sometimes people are saying, well, I shouldn't feel this way because nobody died, you know, um, especially if people haven't been able to start families and they really had wanted to. There can be a, a real grief for that as well that can go on in ripples really throughout somebody's life. Um, there can be obviously grief is more commonly associated when someone has died or if someone is going to die 
And like I said, it can really differ on how good or how complicated the relationship has been with somebody who died. So I was speaking to somebody just today who was asking for tips for how to deal with you know, the death of their 11-year-old. It happened uh, very traumatically and unexpectedly. And, you know, the grief there is is massive and multi-layered. So the grief there would be, you know, the unexpected trauma and loss of that. But also you're grieving for the things that never got to be. You're grieving for the fact that, you know, this person won't ever get married or have children of their own, you know, um, my, I've got, I'm a mother of two. I've got um, a very almost soon to be five year old tomorrow, um, and an almost eight year old as well. And my almost five year old says to me, "Mummy, when I'm older, I'm going to cook you all the foods you love. I'm going to cook you duck. I'm going to cook you camembert, and I'm going to make all of your meals." To which my eldest says, "Ugh, I'm not coming around your house for dinner." And I go, "Oh, that sounds delicious." But when you grieve for a child or you grieve for somebody who didn't get to live the full life that you'd expect and hope and dream of, you know, we hold our newborns in our arms and we know that they might feel like really, really long nights. They might feel like really long days. Sometimes we know that they're short months and they're short years. And sometimes we get through what we're dealing with right now because we have to think of the future and the things where things get better and so this case of someone who had a traumatic and sudden loss of a of a young person you know they're not just grieving for the now but they're grieving for they're grieving for the future they're grieving for the damn silence in their house you know um, as a mum you often say oh god can you just be quiet just please less noise less noise and then of course if you have less noise that's very difficult and then you feel guilty and you feel guilt and you feel remorse forever wishing for that at all so that's a very very long answer isn't it but it's such a complicated thing and I think for me before I experienced grief so before my dad died the term yearning really creeped me out you know the term yearning sounded all sexy and weird but actually, you know, once you've grieved, you really appreciate that yearning, you know, just can feel like it's never going to end, you know, because for me, I think grief and yearning is that you're looking for a piece of a puzzle, you know, a bit that completes you, that makes everything okay. And you can't lay your hands on it. When somebody dies, often... You know, the person you most want to talk to about this is the person who's died because you want to be able to to hear their take on it. You want to be able to process what you've been through. And so for me, it's the absence of the more reciprocal conversation. You know, sometimes it's, sometimes it's not even about the conversation. For me and my dad, I could happily sit in silence with him. You know, we could enjoy a cup of tea and just sit in each other's company as well as talking. But it's just, it feels, it can be a lot like, especially when losing a parent or someone that's in your daily life, it can feel a lot like losing your scaffolding that just makes everything feel a bit saggier, a bit looser, that things don't hold together as well. And it can really make you lose your self-referencing in a way that I hadn't been prepared for. So yeah, that was an even longer answer, but I hope that it, it showcases a little bit about what grief can be like. And I think there's a lot of layers there that we could ask a lot more about, you know, the sense of losing your self-reference of who am I now without this piece of the puzzle being there and almost like that grasping element of yearning. I'm, I'm grasping for what would you think if you were here? What would you say? What would you think of me? What would you think of what I'm going through? What feeling would you have? And I guess there's a lot of empty blank spaces that we can't fill. And in your work with, with grief, in your clinic, in your private practice, do you what kind of things do you see people struggle with then in relationship to these grief elements? You know, what comes up more? Is the, is it the yearning? Is it sort of longing for them, wishing that they were here? Is it more the the grief of the loss that, you know, all the things that we have we had and I didn't maybe appreciate enough at the time? Or is it much more of that future orientated 
they will never see me get married now or they won't hold my baby. And, you know, what kind of elements show up a lot for your clients who come to you for support? I think it's so different, really, depending on the circumstances of the loss. So, you know, I work with people who have sadly been through war or kind of terror atrocities where they've lost somebody very traumatically often in front of them. And so you get the multi-layer of grief and trauma. And, you know, the in those circumstances that I'm thinking of, there's also, you know, the guilt, the shame, the questioning, the self-blame of, you know, could I or should I have done something different? You know, whether, of course, because we're all humans and actually it's our desire to survive. And so sometimes we might do something that inadvertently protects us, but, you know, doesn't necessarily protect our tribe. Um, and that can be a very powerful thing to work through, certainly. But also what what comes up time and time again is that people feel they shouldn't have joy in their lives or that it's difficult to to give themselves permission to move on in their life and to find things they feel really joyful about. So that's something that I also experienced, you know. You find yourself cackling with delight or really enjoying something and then it almost comes back to you as a bit of an intrusive thought an intrusive memory oh don't forget your dad's dead and it's like oh god how can I be so joyfully you know enjoying this moment if he's not on this planet and that's something that crops up again you know again and again with people or that they they feel like they don't want to move forward. So I'm part of a few um, sort of special interest grief and bereavement pages as well. And there can be a sense of, I don't want to move forward in my life at all without this person in it. I can't imagine a future for myself. I don't want a future for myself. Um, and you can, with all the best will in the world, you can say, well, they wouldn't want that for you, but it's how the person is feeling. So. I would say grief and depression are not the same thing, but one can lead to another. And of course, when you know, when we when we lose someone from our life, if they've been if they've helped us get out and about or they've helped us feel more at ease in social situations, then without that person we might do less, which might then lead us more to depression or more to anxiety. So um whilst yeah, grief is not depression. And you can absolutely go through a grieving process. It can contribute to it, of course. So how do we know the difference? How do we, how can someone kind of check in with themselves or check in with a loved one or friend who they know is grieving to see when it's a natural process that we all would go through and work through versus when they need extra input and support for, say, depression or anxiety? How do we know the difference? Okay, it's a really good question. So as we know with depression, Sometimes one of the first signs of depression can be when you look longingly at your bed and you think, oh gosh, I just want to be back there. It all feels safe. It all feels really protective. And I just don't really want to get up today. And grief can be similar in that regard, especially if it's a loss of a partner or a child and you, you know, it can all be so linked to the bed as well. But for me, I think grief and depression are different. So you might have some sort of loss of joy de vivre with, with grief, but, um, you know, there should be a sense that you can kind of get some things done. Maybe not initially, but, um, you know, the loss, so we look when we look at depression, we're looking often at whether it impacts on your well-being, whether it impacts on your ability to be functional, you know, whether it impacts on your risk to yourself or to others and whether uh, there's a fourth one, isn't there? And it, for, for the life of me, it escapes me. So risk, risk well-being, functioning and something else. There's something, it's a good one. That's well. okay. That's okay. This, this podcast is all about being, you know, embracing your imperfections. So it's very on brand for the podcast. Don't worry, Marianne. Perfect. It's a... Uh... Perfect. We can look it up later if anyone is interested. Okay. So with with depression, if if risk started to become apparent, so if you were concerned or someone else was concerned that you posed a risk to yourself or a risk to others. So when I say that, I mean, you know, that you're having thoughts that 
that life is is not worth living or that you're having thoughts about ending your own life or seriously doing some harm to yourself then that is that is more problematic and that's that's more of a depressed style of thinking uh, and that might warrant um you know some sort of reaching out for some external support because we are not made to suffer and whilst we're of course allowed to grieve and mourn and yearn for someone who has died i really do believe that the person the person who has died in their heart of hearts would want you to have a life that feels rich and enjoyable even if they didn't get to say that to you before they died you know we don't want other people to be miserable um and so i think if you're having thoughts that are particularly risky or if you're noticing that it's impacting on your function to such a degree that you really can't get anything done or you can't see the point in getting anything done or if it all feels so very groundhog day you know there's no point in having a shower because i had one last week then that might be a sign that this might be tipping from grief to um to something that might require a little bit more support care and attention and is that the only times where people do need support for their grief i mean when it turns into a depressed state or if we can think more about when it's appropriate for therapy around grief or bereavement counseling when do people need support through their grief Certainly. So no, it's not just about depression. Um, I think that it's helpful to work. So even, even just today, as I was walking back from the school run, I was, I was talking to, um, to a grandma, actually, um, who was talking about her experiences of having um, divorced um, quite some years before and talking about grief and mourning and kind of working through that. And I think she recognised that actually at the time and since that some some support um, and an opportunity to talk in a non-judgmental way would have been really useful for that. So I think whenever we're going through any key life stage, be that moving from you know self-employment to employment or or vice versa, or moving from becoming a mother of one to a mother of two or being married to to being single or single to being married so many different possible life stages or or losing one's parents or you know adopting or there's so many different stages i think it can be really useful to have something therapeutic and supportive counseling or or psychology work to just to help transition those processes and deal with the stuff at the time. So when I did some work recently um, for somebody in a complex trauma um, presentation, what we realized is that they actually had some new stuff going on, but they felt that because we were going through that in the present, we were dealing with that as it came up, that actually they were dealing with that in a way that wasn't going to lead to complex or trapped grief and trauma and it wasn't going to have the same impact on them that it had had um, in the stuff had had in the past where it hadn't been processed and where it hadn't been worked through so i would urge anybody listening to this who's going through something that actually on balance now we take a little pause to think about it feels like a big deal that it might be a chance to think about accessing support to help you just through that transition phase. So yeah, I think don't be ashamed to reach out, don't be afraid to reach out, even if it feels like it might not be a big deal, because, you know, I think it can be really helpful and it can it can stop things being unprocessed and stop things coming back to you at a later stage. You know, because what we realize when we do trauma work is that quite often trauma might feel like it's something about now, but it actually has its roots far earlier in life, far earlier in an, in an experience which perhaps didn't feel that linked. So um, I worked with somebody once who had this sense of just feeling lost and terrified and really vulnerable. And they thought it was about you know something more recent, but actually when we were processing it during EMDR, they realized that it kind of it floated back to a very earlier memory when they'd been on their way to school with their mummy holding her hand. And for a moment, mummy had let go of their hand 
and they just felt sort of completely lost and bewildered and really unsafe and really untethered kind of didn't know whether they were going to be separated from mum in the crowd and just felt this sense of panic and once we'd worked through that actually we were able to help them feel much calmer and safer in the present because it was old stuff that was coming into the now so we often think about grief and trauma work as being appropriately helping it to to be filed away in the right filing cabinet drawer so that we can take it out and look at it when we want to or when we need to but it doesn't come back and bite us when we're least expecting it or when we're least ready for it so i think that can be a really helpful way of thinking about it so if you're going through something let us help you file it let us help you process it now so that it doesn't come and grab you later when actually you might not have the resources to deal with it so it's almost a way of making peace with sort of ghosts in the machine and and letting the machinery run more smoothly so that the past experiences that we've been through, maybe uh, a bereavement or where we grieved or a traumatic experience, that it will no longer be something that feels like it's happening over and over again and is still haunting you, but it will be sort of a memory in the past that you can choose to take out, like choosing to take out a photo album and look through the photos rather than feeling like it's constantly weighing on top of you. So it's a sense of helping your brain process it. So it's really important to acknowledge what you said there of how it's not about sort of admitting defeat or failure, that it's about actually this is a really proactive thing to do to look after your brain and, and your mind to reach out for this support, you know, maybe be bereavement counselling or EMDR therapy. And for, we've mentioned EMDR on the podcast before, but for those of you who are not familiar with this term, do you want to say just a couple of words about what EMDR is and who it's for? Sure. So. It is quite a catchily titled Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. Um, it isn't very catchy, hence why it's generally called EMDR. And what it is, is, is the theory that we've got, you know, well, it's not a theory, we've got two brain hemispheres. So we've got our left hemisphere and our right hemisphere. And of course, what we know is that the left hemisphere controls the right side of our body and vice versa and where we've got two things so many of us are born with two arms many of us are born with two eyes and two legs for example um, where we've got two things it makes sense that actually you know both sides of the brain are controlling you know the other one so my, my left eye um, the visual processing for that is is kind of is controlled by my right side of my brain and and you know so on so the theory is where, we're, where we've got two things and where we can give ourselves sensory input into both sides of our brain, that we're kind of tackling the whole brain almost to process, um, to process our experiences. So where we're using eye movement uh, for EMDR or where we're using, you know, tapping, so we might be using buzzers in our hands, uh, left and right, or we might be I'm gently doing a nice butterfly hug on our shoulders or tapping on our knees. Um, what we're doing is we're accessing both sides of the brain there. And what it does is it gives you an opportunity to, to kind of connect to the past, the thing that might feel challenging, um, whilst being grounded. So before doing MDR, you do um, a stabilization phase of work, which isn't necessarily for everybody, but certainly if people were finding that they were having derailing thoughts or they weren't feeling safe or they weren't able to to get themselves more easily back within a window of tolerance then it might be a you know that they need a slightly longer stabilization phase of therapy so once we're able to comfortably talk and think about trauma while staying grounded whilst using our stabilization techniques then we're ready to able to to give processing a go so that's where we we aren't in the trauma, but we're kind of one foot in the past and one foot out of the past, so to speak. And some of the theory is that maybe it works because we can kind of distract ourselves enough while still working through it. So with trauma and with grief, quite often what happens is that we don't think about it and we don't store it or reflect upon it in a linear way. So we don't reflect upon it from A to Z. We often don't think about the fact that, oh, before it happened, this happened, and after it happened, this happened. So it's not sequential. What it can feel like, grief and trauma, 
is that it sort of goes B, F, G, T, you know, B, A, and it dots around all over the place. So some of the theory is that with EMDR, that we can kind of help the body and the mind to know, to appreciate and to sense that, oh, it's not happening now. And it helps time and date stamp that experience. So both with grief and trauma and the way that they have the, the shared ground, you can almost, not almost just see it, but people tell you, oh God, oh, even within the course of a session, right. Yeah, that's not now, is it? Yeah, that was that was seven years ago and it does feel it now. You know, when I'd done some trauma work with somebody, he said, I feel like I've been carrying around these heavy shopping bags with me for like nine years. But I've just put them down and I've realised what I've been carrying. And I've realised that, yeah, that's not now. Oh, God. And there's that felt sense that you, you, you're allowed to experience and connect and join up to. It can feel like magic. You know, it can feel like, you know, when it works for a client, it just works beautifully. And I haven't experienced EMDR myself. The uh, the experience is very much that it does feel like extremely hard work, but a you know a, a beautiful way of where you just have to ride the waves of it. And that's it's different to psychological talking therapies where you kind of sit and reason your way around it, kind of talk consciously about it, and it's much more emotive. And you just kind of you're you're along for the ride. Um, and I just as you were speaking, and, and yes, there are long answers because these are complicated concepts. And it's very hard to kind of give quick, snappy answers about complex human experiences. So I do appreciate that there will be long answers. So for anyone tuning in, you know, obviously we will not be able to kind of give you the full picture of grief and trauma in, in this one episode either. There is another one coming up shortly, you know, you know, in the next few episodes, I'm interviewing someone else about how we can heal the past. So we will dive deeper into this as well. But today we're also thinking a lot about I guess with the images we have around grief of how how it shatters our world and and when you were speaking I was thinking about the the cover of your book the the grief collective you know the little beads you have there and I've I've somewhere on the internet can't remember where read the story of why you chose that picture but do you mind telling the listeners why why you have that picture and what what can they what was on the cover and why did you choose that Sure so um, my book, The Grief Collective, Stories of Life, Loss, Learning and he- Learning to Heal, um, is a collection of 54 stories of pe- by people who have grief. It all came about uh, because I was challenged to write a book in a month by another psychologist um, who we both know. And so within that month, I had to do everything, you know, including doing my cover. And, you know, speaking as a woman who also has her book and it's in front of me and it's beautiful. Everyone should get the lasting <laughs> connection. Um, and if you get the paperback copy, you can see it's got a beautiful metallic orange swirl as well. So just a little advert for you there, Michaela. It's embossed. I'm very it, proud it of this is. embossed yeah, copper it's, symbol. It's fantastic. Oh, it's, it's, copper, it's visually, <laughs> it's copper. Yeah, copper, darling. You have to get it right. But yeah, no, but yes, thank you very much. I'm very proud of that. But it's, uh, I certainly did that. not produce it in a month. No, you didn't. You know, and I like the style of your your compassion to yourself within that. But yeah. People don't talk enough about your beautiful copper, your copper um, symbol. So, but you're the cover of my book. So I had to do all of that within a month. And, you know, I I said to people on socials, because they were, I I decided to to kind of showcase my journey, to be honest with the audience as I was creating it. So I was telling them that I was doing this and, um, you know, I was telling them today is book cover day. And my eldest had got up early that day as he's, he's, he, him and his brother are just like me. I'm an early bird. Um, and had asked to do aqua beads. And we'd bought this big case of aqua beads from eBay. And he dropped them all over the table. And so I'd taken a photo of this mishmash of different colour beads all over the table. I'd said, oh, you know, I was going to be making my book cover today. But first of all, I'm going to put all these aqua beads away. And somebody said, well, this is it. This is grief. You know, this is things spilling out of a box. This is all the colours blending together. This is not being able to find yourself and not being able to find the order. This is your cover. This is it. And so then my husband and I set about taking some slightly artier 
photos um, of of this box of aquabeads that were all jumbled up. So that is the cover, and I, you know, people do comment on it because it's quite striking. My husband quite fancied mm. um, having an empty armchair on the front, and I was like, no, that's so boring. You know, that's quite stiff and stuffy. That's not that's not what I'm about at all. And actually, the grief collective it came about because. I wanted people to be supported in their grief and validated and normalized. So this experience of 54 people who have all grieved for a variety of different relationships or things, writing to you, the reader, about their experiences and the things that helped them, it is that mishmash, isn't it? And it is so unique for others. And it's not stuffy. You know, when you read it, you can hear the different voices. You can hear the different accents almost you know there's a lady who's welsh and she's written in it and you can hear that she's welsh by the words she uses and the way that she speaks and i didn't want it to sound like 54 stories i was telling so people have said you know have you thought about doing an audiobook version and i said well no i can't really because it would mean that i'd have to have 54 different people doing it and some of the stories are anonymous and so it wouldn't feel it wouldn't feel right unless it was their genuine voice. And we could we could act it out. We could get 54 different people doing it. But for now, there's no audio book, but there is an e-book and there is um, a paperback. And the feedback has just been lovely that it's doing what it said on the tin. It's helping people feel normalized and validated in their experience of grief. You know, it's exactly what I wanted it to achieve. So I was very aware that whilst I was grieving, that I had, because I am a psychologist, I was around people who were okay with talking about grief, who knew it was okay to say, how are you doing? Even if I seemed okay, who knew that, you know, if I was working with, they might be psychologists, but they might be working in mental health teams that knew that actually you, could, you can dig a little deeper if someone says they're fine. Oh yeah, I'm fine. You know, you can dig a little deeper. But I knew that most people and it's even people who didn't get grief and didn't didn't work in mental health didn't mention dad to me. So they, they might look at my face all puffy, look that I looked like I hadn't been eating. I had two young children at the time as well. And I, they might, I probably look absolutely awful. And yet not wanting to name that elephant in the room would talk to me about everything else other than my dad or what I was experiencing because they didn't want to rock the boat. They didn't want to make me cry. But actually what we know in grief is that it's not you that's made the person cry. It's their acute sense of loss and sorrow and sadness. So it's always okay to ask the question, to check in with how they're doing. And I think that's something I've always been quite good at. So one of my friends lost a dog who was very dear to her um, a number of years ago before we got married. And the first opportunity that I saw her in person, I took her to one side and said, how are you doing? after the loss of your dog and she almost became she almost quickly became sort of overwhelmed and, and welled up and was like my god thank you so much for asking because people just don't ask me you know even though they know this has been actually at that time in her life had been one of the most significant things to ever happen to her because it had been so traumatic and sudden it happened in an accident and so I've always known it's okay to shake a few cages and to to know that people can look after themselves but the grief collective was put together to help people know that it's, you know, you're part of a club now, you know, those of us who get it, get it and welcome aboard. So that's, that's why it was put together. And it, it seems to be doing rather well for what, what it set out to do. And people are saying it's really helped them process stuff they've been keeping locked within or not wanted to talk about for so long. And they see you know, some people were like, were you sure, you know, as a psychologist that you want to share so much of yourself within this book? Um, and I know that you've done some of the same uh, yourself as well. And some of the bits in your book that mm -hmm. I like the most are actually the bits where you talk about yourself and you're like, oh, should I be doing this? You know, are people going to want to know? And I'm mm -hmm. like, yes, Michaela, they're my favorite bits. I'm absolutely okay with being a human first and a psychologist second. And that's why people come to me. So I do daily videos on my socials, so on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook. For um, They're called my four-minute clinic, where I just have a little bit of a touch base with people about, you know, some kind of common psychological thing that's going on. And so those four-minute clinics are an opportunity to see my unique take on the world. There might sometimes be some personal stories woven in, 
Um, but the four minute clinic is a, you know, I'm all right with being human and I'm all right with being a human first and a psychologist second. So people, when they come to me for private work, they know that they're going to get a little bit of appropriately shared stuff from me in there as well, but it's absolutely not all about me, but you know, people want to relate to a human first, not a psychologist. Mm, Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it means you've lived experience and like we said before we started recording is that that means that as psychologists we also have the responsibility for doing our own processing of you know a parallel processing of what's going on in our own life so that when we speak about experiences if we do if we feel that that's a vulnerability we want to step into that we then speak from a scar something that's scabbed over and healed but is part of our journey rather than speaking from an open wound which will be too emotive for us and the therapy becomes about us and not about our clients so that's obviously part of our training for for anyone who's listening and wondering you know is it appropriate for a psychologist to share how much can they share what do I do if my therapist or psychologist mentions their own personal experience and you know to trust that most of us also use supervision to process what's going on for us so that we will make sure it doesn't contaminate what's going on in the therapy room so i think this is something that's come up quite a few times on the podcast when i've interviewed um psychologists therapists experts who've been really vulnerable and open and honest about their experience and it's it's so well received and that is what made me put in my story um, bits in the book as well in the lasting connection I couldn't kind of write a book about connection without doing one of the things I know feeds connection which is vulnerability so I just want to honor you and thank you for for talking about that so openly that this is the journey into creating the grief collective into being passionate in your in your business and I've got I guess that links with purpose thinking about what purpose can you feel here how can you serve a role and serve other people who've experience grief like you do and I think the title the grief collective is so powerful because it's a collective of stories but it's also showing that this is a collectively shared experience a human experience that you may be fortunate um, and myself included I've not really experienced strong grief in my life yet but it will come you know I've not experienced grief of of losing a loved person but I've had I've grieved losses in other ways and you touched upon that early on in our interview today that it's not just about you know someone has died, but actually we can lose and grieve other things. The loss of something that never was about to be, you know, or someone who never conceived a child despite desperately longing for parenthood. That's a loss that we can grieve. Can you give some other examples of things that we grieve that isn't about people dying in that sense? Sure. I think it's something I've spoken about a great deal through the pandemic as well. So I'd written something um, in Telegraph as well about this. Um, that grief isn't just about death. It isn't, you know, there is no grief hierarchy. You know, what we're doing is we're we're not minimizing anyone else's experience. So of course we can appreciate that losing a loved one is, is, is big and important, but it doesn't diminish our own experiences. So during the pandemic, there has been many, many griefs, you know, um, people haven't been able to do really important life stages. They haven't been able to get married they haven't been able to take big and important holidays or honeymoons they haven't been able to start jobs that they would have wanted to do it might mean that you know they've lost jobs or that whole businesses whole companies have become bankrupt and they've been made unemployed you know we're allowed to grieve for that you know um i've got um family who have family who live abroad you know in australia and of course they haven't been able to see them whole people have been born Whole people have sadly died without um, being able to have that sense of community and connectedness and togetherness that we usually would. So sometimes people have decided, you know, after putting off their wedding for two or three times, actually just to do it with them and their partner. But then, of course, they might grieve for the wedding they never had or their families might grieve for the wedding they never got to attend. But people's lives don't stop just because of the pandemic and you still want to progress in the normal way. So I know one of my previous colleagues, her daughter, was due to get married um, quite early into the pandemic, but they delayed it and are actually getting married this year. Um, And the plan had always been to, you know, get married and then start a family. And sure enough, you know, their life hasn't stopped progressing as it would have done elsewise. 
and they they are now expecting their first child together. But of course, that's different than it would have looked like had they had their marriage, you know, their big public marriage and then their lovely honeymoon. And, you know, this child um, is now going to be present at their, their, their parents' wedding, um, whereas that was never supposed to be the way. So they might look back and think, oh, well, I can't imagine it any other way. But it's not that, you know, speaking as a mummy who got married before she had her children, once you're a mother, you absolutely look back at your wedding day and think how different that would have been if my children had been yeah. there. You know, there's there's the different factors. You know, a child could have been ill or, you know, in my case, clingy or seeing mummy and daddy at the front and then shouting from the back, mummy, mummy, you know. Um, you know, it would have been very different. I had a gloriously self-focused abundant passionate joyful day that was just about me and my husband and all the wonderful people I recall recall walking into it was a beautiful sort of cathedral setting but it was a non-religious wedding so I got married in um I speak to you from Coventry I got married in Coventry Guildhall and it was stunning I remember walking into this beautiful sunlit room with the light streaming through the stained glass windows and just looking at all these people who I loved and just feeling so lucky to have them all in one room. But people who haven't been able to get married or have had to have very much smaller occasions than they would have wanted to have had, they haven't been able to have that. And I think that's really very sad indeed for many people. So yeah, that's another complicated answer, but there's so many different things that we can grieve for. Mm, absolutely. And I think that's that's something that I've definitely heard in the therapy room as well of, of noticing that you know, extending therapy episodes with more sessions they would normally have because things have just almost been put on pause, on hold in the past year of whatever we were working on in therapy. We also had to then deal with the losses coming up, you know, the the things that were supposed to, and I say supposed to, it's sort of, you know, quote unquote, supposed to, planned to be joyous events that then turned out to be something very different. And it's been a lot of adjustments and acceptances and changes and transitions, like you said, that's something that we can can grieve as well. And you know, people have having had their first babies in a pandemic and grieving their maternity leave not being like they thought it would be, grieving not seeing family, people being pregnant. I'm currently pregnant and I've not seen my family at all during this pregnancy. They're not seeing my pregnant body this time around. So there's a lot of things uh, that we can grieve. You know, my like yourself, I have family abroad. So. All of those losses, I guess, is not about putting them on a hierarchy that mine is more significant than yours. So that's the kind of comparison trap we really want to step out of. That acknowledging that suffering is suffering, you know, is a very subjective thing. So when life is really turned upside down, like when those beads are spilled out over the table, I guess the colorful beads I see in this picture on, on the cover of your book, to me, is a beautiful symbol of the joy and the closeness and connection we had with that person or with that thing that we wanted. And then the spilling out of it, you can still see all the colors, but it's all over the place. It's all jumbled up. The process of therapy helps to put it all back together again. But I guess when we think about how life is turned upside down by grief, how can we speak to ourselves kindly about it? What, you know, in your work with compassion, how is that helpful for processing grief? Well, therein lies the million-dollar question, and actually my journey into compassion and compassion-focused therapy only happened after my dad died. And I think that my experience of grief would have been very different had I known more about compassion and its value at that time. So I think had I known more about compassion, I would have probably asked for a bit more help especially given that at the time. So when my dad died, I had an 18-month-old and um, I think he was four. Um, that's difficult. And I was um, breastfeeding my youngest and he was a multi-waker, so I was not getting much sleep. And what I've learned is that grief needs sleep to heal. Um, so I was fortunate that I was able to take a few months off because I was working for the NHS at that time and they were really supportive and they were compassionate and they helped me have a phased return back to work. But what I realized very quickly is that in terms of periods of absence, it just counted as one period of absence. So there was definitely a sense that, oh, 
I probably should go back to work, but doing the work we do, it's kind of important that I've processed some of it and kind of I'm not going to be in floods of tears every time someone mention, mentions their father. Um, and what we know is that um, when you start working with somebody, sometimes the stuff on the referral is not the stuff. Um, so we were quite careful with my referrals to begin with to make sure that I wasn't dealing with dead dads or I wasn't dealing with esophageal cancer because it was just too close to the bone. So I could absolutely do my job, but I perhaps couldn't do it when it was, like you said, when it wasn't quite healed over yet, when it was still, you know, a bit scabby rather than being a scar. Um, so we were quite mindful about that. But quite often, as as is life in therapy, you know, dead dads crop up and, you know, these cancers weave their way in. And before you know it, you know, my stuff is kind of there too. And it's just like you said, using supervision appropriately and just you know, sometimes being honest as well, actually, you know, I'm finding this is this is making me think of some of my stuff as well. And I wonder what that's about. I'm, you know, I was I'm absolutely not afraid to say that I've grieved if I'm doing grief work with somebody. And I think that as part of being the collective, that can be really helpful. Um, so uh, I feel like I've forgotten your question, Michaela. Have I answered it? That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll have some compassion for that. And that's, yeah. you know, so much richness in what you're saying. But was, we were talking about compassion for grief and how that is important in, in helping the healing process. Of course we were. Thank you. So, yeah, um, I was, I, yeah, I was being compassionately mindful about what I was taking on, but allowing myself to take a nice chunk of time and knowing that with the unique way that my NHS sick leave was structured, that it didn't really make much difference whether I took, you know, one week or three months. Um, so I did think I did take closer to three months. And that was really nice for me to be able to have a little bit of time because my dad, um, he died shortly before Christmas. And so actually what happened was that what I needed was time to myself, time to lay in bed and let my world fall apart a bit and try and work out who I was without my dad in the, in the present. But what I got was children who were then finished childcare and not at school um, for the Christmas break. And so I got no time. I got no sleep. I got, you know, suddenly having to be excited about Christmas for small children that were so excited to see Santa and somehow having to to juggle all of that, which is very difficult when, you know, feeling kind of ripped to pieces, really. Um, so I think, yeah, the time of year was always going to be tricky. But I think I would have asked, so if this happened now, I would have asked for a little bit more of what I needed and know that that was okay. There wasn't, you know, we think about the shoulds. There is no should for losing your father whilst having very young children and getting no sleep and being a psychologist and being a mother, you know, and a wife. There is no should for that. And you don't need to do it all. You can absolutely say, hey, uh, you know, would you be able to watch my kids for a few hours so I can have a nap or just so I can sit in a house that's quiet or just so that I can look at some photos of my dad and have these tears course, you know, freely down my cheeks. So that was a very normal phase for me. Sometimes during dinner, I would just be crying. You know, I'd just be crying because I was so sad. Um, and recently I learned of a friend who died. And for a weekend, there was a definite resurgence of that. And my eldest was like, oh, um, you know, is this like when Grampy died? You know, you're, you're just going to cry now. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm just sad, baby. You know, I'm just sad that this happened. And I'm going to be okay, but right now I'm sad. And because it is sad, you know, we when we're told about a loss that we weren't expecting or even a loss that we were expecting, we're allowed to be human, you know. So what we know about crying is that as mammals, as humans, it's our first sort of help-seeking strategy. It's our communication to others within our tribe that I'm not okay. You know, you should perhaps think about asking if I am okay. So even if you see a stranger crying, you know, in the supermarket, you're probably quite likely to say, are you okay? Is there anything I can do to help? So we can think about the crying as a help-seeking strategy, but also as part of the healing and the processing. It's a really important phase. 
And I guess what you're talking about there of earmarking the space for this very much physical, emotional, spiritual memory kind of manifestation of the grief. There were so many aspects of it in your story there, of kind of everything from the tearfulness to kind of the sadness to thinking about it and feeling physically very spent and lethargic. I guess if we don't allow that space, if we're in like in your case, having other responsibilities like young children or a you know, emotionally demanding job, it can be really difficult to earmark that space as an act of kindness for yourself that you're describing here is asking for more support, signaling that we're not quite okay, mm-hmm. allowing the tears to come in. And, you know, without me asking it, you actually summarized really well there of how we can also communicate to our children about grief that, you know, I am, I'm going to be okay. I'm sad right now. And I'm crying about this because it is sad. You know, so many of us have grown up with there being sort of a hush-hush about grief or sadness or crying that just wasn't talked about. So someone took themselves off to the side. I remember that clearly when my, you know, a memory from when I was very little, when my dad lost his dad, that I remember sort of the dark cloud of, you know, grief, but nobody talked about it. I didn't understand why he was just lying there on the sofa. And then it just disappeared and it was not talked about again. So I think one of those things of how we allow ourselves to talk about grief, you've summarized that beautifully early as well, of how we allow ourselves the permission to talk to someone about their grief. If you see the red eyes and the tears, don't feel worried that you're going to cause harm to them by asking. You're not the one causing the grief. It's their grief experience causing the grief. So this has been beautiful to think about all of these aspects. And I hope that listeners have taken a lot of things away. I'm wondering also, your story is sort of similar to what I've heard from from Susie Redding, who's another psychologist who's been on the podcast, who's written books around self-care. And that came a lot from her experience of losing her father. And she talks openly about that. Um, so I wonder if we can think about how that has shaped you and your purpose in your business, in the work you do, that actually the growth you've had from experiencing this grief, how has that connected with your purpose? It's, uh, it's, you know, so caught up together. So I think whilst, you know, whilst it doesn't, you don't have to be hit by a bus to know that it hurts, it certainly helps your empathy if, if you have had that experience happen to you. So um, I think that, yeah, even having recently moved from being part self-employed and part um, NHS employed to full self-employment I know that you and I have spoken a great deal about how to you know how to think about how much work we want to do and not not making ourselves fully booked you know Monday to Friday nine to five that's just that's just not what I want to do I want to have mm-hmm. you know the number of clients that I want to be able to have and to be able to mindfully you know do all the bits that goes with that like the clinical notes um, I want to I want to be feeling like I'm looking forward to sessions with clients, not feeling like, oh, no, not another one, because that's not that's not me doing a service to myself and that's not me doing a service to the client. So I love my job, you know. I love what I do. I feel super, super lucky that I get to do this and that people pay me, you know. I So it doesn't feel like a chore, but, of course, it's important that we still do look after ourselves. So... I very recently turned 40, so I turned 40 um, on Saturday, just gone. And, you know, on a Friday, uh, part of me was a bit like, oh, a birthday weekend, great. But also means the kids will be around, so it'll be less like indulgence time. So what I did was I took the Friday off and I went and had lunch by myself, which was just lovely in a cafe and it was really tasty and nice. Uh, I didn't have to share it with anyone either, which is ace. And then I went and had a pedicure. And I went and had like a massage as well, which was just so nice. And then afterwards, I went and bought some clothes in my favorite shop with no children, you know, and I just, I wasn't particularly rushed and harassed. And I tried things on and they looked lovely. And it was just like, oh, this meant to, it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And so, um, you know, even in mindfully kind of bridging my 30s to my 40s was quite a useful process to do. And, you know, that was the final day of my 30s that I spent having a really indulgent day that was very well earned. Um, And it was something that I had purposefully planned in. You know, I'd I'd made that space in my diary. So I would ordinarily do a couple of different bits on a Friday, but I made sure that I did them earlier in the week so that I could really have that day. Not at all guilt, you know, not what 
entirely guilt-free, you know, not at all guilt-laden. Um, and to know that actually that's really important to me. And it's really made me think that actually I might do that more often. I might like have self-care Friday once a month where I just don't do any of the other bits for anybody else. And I just think about putting back into me so we can think about making sure that we've got the resilience. So it can be helpful to think about actually if you've got if you've got a bottle of water and it's quite full and you've got the lid on and you shake it and shake it and shake it and nothing's going to happen, nothing's going to leak out. But if you take the lid off, then it's not going to spill unless you encounter some turbulence, unless something shakes it or disrupts it. But what happens with um, when we are full up to the brim and we don't have any capacity or flexibility is that it doesn't take very much before everything spills everywhere, all the water comes spilling out of the top. So if we're able to just give ourselves a little bit more time to decompress and to just kind of feel like we're not strung out, you know, then it means that there's less water in the bottle so that when there is turbulence, when there's a little bit of rock and roll, it doesn't spill. You know, we can absorb that to and fro, that rough and tumble without everything spilling everywhere. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful analogy. Yeah. My self-care Friday is going to be a little bit of decompressing that bottle or giving myself a bigger bottle, giving myself less water so that I don't spill everywhere and so that I can keep doing all of these multi-layered jobs that I've got of being a wife, of being a mother, of being Marianne, of being a psychologist, of being a business owner, um, of doing all these different things and spinning these different hats. And I can do them all well enough, you know, so I don't need to be perfect at it, definitely not. Good enough is good enough, but, um, you know, I can keep those plates spinning or sometimes I can put some of those plates down and that's okay too. And I think that's part of our discussions when we talked about how we want to show up in our business lives and as working mothers and, and, and really looking after ourselves, tuning into that compassion element again. So this is obviously what our profession is quite plagued by, that sort of saviour's complex where we have to always be there for others. And you know what your story shows us is that actually taking the time to pause and reflect and rest and recover so that we are there for ourselves, turning towards ourselves with compassion, really helps us to also continue to do this good work for others, to meeting people in their grief, in their complex traumas, you know, people who've survived war and torture and horrible things that have happened to them. It's really important that we have that element of pausing. And I also understand, obviously, that anyone listening can feel that there's a sense of privilege here, that we talk about how we design our work week, that obviously there is a privilege when you are a business owner compared to when you are maybe employed in a on a low wage, but it doesn't have to be a full day. You know, there's so small things you can do, you know, five minutes to yourself here and there without the kids present, it can be enough of a pocket of pausing. So I find that really, really helpful that you shared that your difficult journey with grief, the sort of elements of dark is also linked to the elements of light, the joy, the passion, the purpose, uh, everything you love about your job. So I think it's really powerful that you've shared that. So lastly, before we finish, let's think about play. Let's think about playfulness. What's fun and enjoyable and playful to you, either in your work or outside of work or both? Well, um, I enjoy a little bit of exercise lately, I won't lie. So I've started running and interval training. And that, again, is a nice opportunity for me to, to decompress and have things just be about me. As a family, we are Uno players. We love it. So um, pretty much most evenings before bed, we not, not before my bedtime, but before the kids' bedtime, um, which is 6.30 of an evening, my favourite time of day. And then they're, they're usually in bed by like 7, 7.15. Um, but, you know, from 6 till 6.30, it's Uno time. Uh, and the, the four of us will play Uno together. And honestly, it's, it's, I don't know if you've ever played it, but it's so good. Like, it's really compelling. Um, and the eight-year-old, almost eight-year-old, often beats us. Like, it's joyful about it. And, you know, it's this opportunity to feel like really proud and like admiring that this little eight-year-old's had a strategy he's not eight why do I keep saying eight he's not eight yet because he calls himself almost eight 
um, but he's had this strategy. It matters. It matters when you're that little, it then does, almost eight it? matters. <laughs> so he's had this strategy and he's flashed his parents, you know, <laughs> I just love it. Yeah. So it's, an, you know, I think often being a working parent or any parent for that matter of a fact, you can feel like well, I, haven't, I haven't done a thing or haven't done enough with my kids today, you know, because sometimes I do just want to lay on the sofa and play on my iPad, you know, play homescapes or gardenscapes, both big, big fans of mine, or I'm big fans of them. Um, sometimes I don't want to talk to my kids, you know, sometimes I don't want to parent them. And that's absolutely normal. But you know, this Uno time is kind of almost like a guaranteed family reconnection time, where we can spend that together doing something a little bit more playful, just before bed. And that's something that we all really look forward to. I love that. I love that. Because even when you're talking about it, I can hear the the laughter in your voice and the smile on your face. It's very sort of, I can I hear it in your voice there. And that's one of the pieces of wisdom I often give to parents who put pressure on themselves to be perfect, to do all of it, like to to do all the glitter and the arts and craft, and even though they hate it, I'm like, actually do the same thing over and over again. If you love it, they will build connection with your child. So if that Uno Uno session every day, you know, fills you with that much joy, you're more likely to do it. And it's better that we find the things that we like doing with our kids and do that. And you know, well, that's also why they have <laughs> why they have childcare and school. And there's messy play there. You don't have to do it at home if you absolutely hate it. So it's it's really lovely to hear how playfulness connects with both joy and connection for you. That's kind of a building family time and it makes it easier after a tough day to also move towards that play. So thank you so much for sharing those little tips. And yes, I do have an Uno set and we do like playing it. Um, <laughs> my little little one is not even five yet and he's already sort of mastering Cluedo and Uno and all of these things he's he loves uh games and strategies so love we it. we love playing board game if I can't be bothered and I'm too tired and fatigued to do anything I'm like should we play board game um it means I don't have to get down on the floor and I can just sit there and then do something I enjoy as well and that's okay it's not selfish it's self-compassionate so thank you so much for talking about all of these things with me today what would be, as a, as a little wrap-up, what would be a sort of final tangible takeaway for the listeners, do you think? You know, either a permission you want to give them or a pressure you want to take off them. Just know that it's okay to be human. Whatever you're thinking or feeling, you're only feeling because you're human, you know, because in a way that these brains of ours have been put together. And to know that whatever you're feeling is valid and important. Um, we don't need to, you know, to adjust um, or squeeze or squash any of that to make it look prettier to someone else. So you're allowed to have feelings and you're absolutely allowed to, to talk about them and share them with others um, if, that, if that feels like you've got a safe place to do that. And if you don't, then maybe reach out to someone that feels a little safer. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. And for anyone who wants to find out more about you, obviously your website, goodthinkingpsychology.co.uk, is a great place to start where you can find lots of information about the Grief Collective, you know, um, ways of working with Marianne, but also let us know what are your um, social media handles? Where can people find you if they want to follow you and catch these four-minute clinic things? Sure. So on LinkedIn, you can catch me on, um, if you search for Dr. Marianne Trent, you can see them there. Or if you just search on LinkedIn um, for hashtag four-minute clinic, and it's um, four is one, is, is the number four-minute clinic, then they should all appear. Um, and I'm on YouTube at Good Thinking Psychological Services. On Instagram is Good Thinking Psychological, I believe, because you have to have a shorter one. And Twitter, I am Good Thinking PS1. That's catchy, isn't it? And then Facebook is Good Thinking Psychological Services. And the Grief Collective is also on Instagram, um, Grief Collective Book, and on Facebook, the Grief Collective Book. Fantastic. So people can have a look at that and look at your website and also read more about the Feel Better Academy, which we have not talked much about today. But so if you wanted to summarize that in one sentence, no pressure. What would you say about the Feel Better Academy? Okay, so the Feel Better Academy is my course um, where people can absolutely learn about the stabilization phase of treatment that I talked about. So it's a pre-record course, but with a live element each week from me um, for the Ask Me Anything um, so if you feel like you wanted to save some money on um, on therapy by accessing the stabilization phase as a pre-record course, then that's a great option. Um, but also not it's not just about um, saving money. It's a really effective tool as well. 
Brilliant. Thank you so much for, for outlining all of that. So I can't be more pleased to have had you on the show. And I think that's why this episode has been slightly longer than usual, because grief is very complicated and a difficult topic to talk about. So I think that you've done that beautifully. And also we've had some elements of joy and humor in there as well. So thank you so much for joining me. And uh, thank you for all the wisdom. Thank you so much, Michaela. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the end of this episode about grief, which is no doubt a complex matter, but can also give rise to a sense of purpose and growth and learning. It's almost like getting through the moments of dark can help you move towards moments of light. If you've experienced grief and this is really triggering for you to listen to, do really pay attention to the aspects of this episode where we talk about self-compassion. Go easy on yourself. Do what you can. Dip in and out of this episode. Maybe come back and listen to it again to hear all the nuances to it. Go on and Google what it means to have complicated grief, perhaps. And also look up sources for bereavement counselling or grief therapy. If you do feel that you need support for grief or bereavement, do speak to your GP about a referral to your nearest NHS trust. Or look out for low-cost counselling options for bereavement. There's bound to be something in your local area. Don't suffer alone. Do speak to someone about it. And remember what Marianne said about how processing the grief helps us put all the beads back into place again. If you've enjoyed this episode, do share it to someone. Make sure to try to leave us a review. Rate this podcast because it helps it become more and more visible to other people. And as you've heard in this episode, I've shared some vulnerability myself as well. I'm currently heavily pregnant, so there will be a limit to how much I can spread the podcast when I go off on maternity leave. So you, dear Port Purpose Player listener, actually doing that work for me would be hugely appreciated. I would love it if you could share episodes, tell other people about the podcast and rate and review it. So please do that. Go to Apple Podcasts and rate it and review it and that helps our visibility and until i speak to you next time do please take care of yourself thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode i know it's not easy when you feel busy and overwhelmed to find time for another thing to do If this is you, if you feel overwhelmed or that you are close to your breaking point, then I've got a downloadable checklist for you that's going to help. This checklist is called Calm the Overwhelm. The first section has signs and symptoms of you being overwhelmed mentally or physically, showing you that you might be close to breaking point or burning out. The second part is actionable, easy things you can do to try to slow down and give yourself a break. And the third part is a checklist of all the things that might show up when you're asking yourself to take a break. Perhaps your inner critical voice will have an opinion about why you're not allowed to give yourself the permission to pause. To download this free resource, go to www.thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. So that's thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. This episode of the Pause Purpose Play podcast was presented by me, Michaela Thomas, and you can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk. And because great work rests on having a great team, this episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media.